I'm Joe Zane. And I'm John Good. And this is Michigan Mobility Scene. Okay, welcome back to Michigan Mobility Scene. Um, John, you're the host this time, so oh, that's go right, right ahead. Oh, yeah, so <laughs> Joe, uh, for this for this case, uh, uh, for today, uh, I'm I'll be uh, I'll be the host, and uh, Joe will be the co-host slash uh, person I'm interviewing. So, uh, Joe, could you um, first just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, you grew up uh, in in Michigan, right? Yes, I, I grew up in Michigan. I was born uh, in the Macomb County area, and I lived there until I was three, eventually moving out to Oakland County, going to Rochester Schools and uh, International Academy in Bluefield Hills. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, and where, where did you go after that? I, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, which is a beautiful place to be. Great. It's right along, right along uh, the Chesapeake Bay, right? The Severn River, which feeds into the the Chesapeake Bay, yes, it's uh, gorgeous. Really great setting for any college campus. But what it spoiled me because I went from going to a place that is very focused on uh, having a car to get around to some place where I could walk out the front gate of the campus and be someplace where I want to be. I'm able to walk downtown, there are bars, restaurants, and I always, from there, I, I, I love the pedestrian experience. Yeah, um, I'm sure we can talk about Annapolis, and I was actually just there a few weeks ago. Um, it's a great, great walkable environment. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what, what made you want to go to the Naval Academy? That's a, you know, not a typical choice, but it's a, obviously a great institution. So somewhere while I was going to high school, I decided I wanted to go into the Marine Corps. I even went as far as signing enlistment papers in this thing called the Delayed Entry Program, where they you could sign up as a rising senior, at least 17 years old, with the understanding that you'll go enlist in the Marine Corps. And the recruiter that I talked to agreed that if I was accepted into the Naval Academy, he'd let me out of that commitment. So I only applied to one college, the U.S. Naval Academy, and I got in, and the rest is history. But I, I won't say I never wavered in my commitment to become a Marine, but I was, it stayed top of mind. And after four years of being exposed to the Navy, getting a chance to go on a submarine, getting an opportunity to sail from Annapolis to Rhode Island, and really loving, falling in love with the sea, I ended up staying focused and, and becoming uh, a Marine, uh, accepting a commission as a officer in the Marine Corps in 2007. Uh, right at graduation, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I was an 03 grad from high school, and then four years later, I uh, graduated from, from the Naval Academy. Where did you go right after that? So. Uh, Unlike most people who get a commission right out of the academy, I took a little bit of a detour. During the academy, I was part of this group that focused on applying for a Rhodes Scholarship. And it was mostly just an opportunity for us to talk with like-minded scholarly individuals and try to develop intellectually. But uh, the, kind, the construct was that we were, we were going to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship, which I did and, and didn't get in. But uh, I 
was exposed while I was going through that to another scholarship, which is provided just for Naval Academy graduates called the Zip Scholarship, which is relatively small, but it's like one graduate a year to go to the University of Heidelberg in Germany. So I went in 2007 to Heidelberg, where I lived for two years. I ended up getting a degree in American Studies from the University of Heidelberg, as well as a degree in International Relations from the University of Oklahoma, which was actually offered through the base there in the Heidelberg area. That must have been a fascinating experience to uh, under, well, learn about America from, uh, from Germany. It was a great, diverse group. I, I'm trying to think back to that time, but we had Americans, we had Germans in the, the group, and it was, I think, about a dozen people in the end uh, for, in my, my class, my cohort. Uh, but we also had... Uh, an Iranian woman, uh, someone from China, and you know a couple. I think one person from Russia. So it, it was definitely we had good conversations and uh, good exposure to uh, different viewpoints. Absolutely. Um, so after uh, after those master's programs, where where did you go next? So it was back to the Marine Corps, the standard officer training for Marines is called the basic school. It's in Quantico, Virginia. So in September of 2009, after taking a brief break to get married, I actually didn't, I did not walk for my graduation from the University of Heidelberg because I needed to start at the basic school. So I uh, ended up starting in September of 2009. Uh, we uh, were there in, in Virginia for a year and a half. And at the beginning of my time as uh, at the basic school and as a Marine, I really wanted to become an infantry officer. It's kind of like the platonic ideal of a Marine, someone who is going out there and is in the line of fire. But it was actually very competitive to become an uh, infantry officer. And after exposure to in basic infantry tactics, which is what the basic school is, I decided that there were other people more committed to that, and I and didn't end up putting infantry officers as my top choice. Uh, I was exposed to communications, which is IT, radios, and whatever it takes to make sure that Marines can talk to each other. And uh, it went from really the bottom of my list to, to the top. I, I, was, I ended up putting it number three uh, to become a communications officer. And because of the nature of the work, it wasn't very competitive to get that spot. And it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I ended up being selected as a communications officer and uh, going to communications officer school from there, which was also in, in Quantico. So I ended up that, that's extended my time there at, uh, at, in that area in Stafford, south of D.C. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and I think after that, you went to Japan, right? Yeah, we were selected to go to Iwakuni, Japan. I was the communications officer there. It's a relatively small air station, still on Honshu, which is the main island in Japan. The same island as Tokyo, but about nine, ten hours away, depending on how fast you're driving. And so that's like saying that San Francisco is the same state as San Diego. Uh, so it wasn't really in the center of things. It's relatively rural. Uh, mostly life was dominated by the base, but it was a small base. So it's like living in a village. And I spent most of my time away from the main base doing a lot of exercises. We would go to Guam 
We spent some time in Korea, Thailand, Australia was fun. Uh, so we got to see much of the Pacific Rim while I was there, more or less planning the communications needs for this aircraft group, which had, for some context, uh, consisted of one squadron of 12 jets that was permanently stationed in Iwakuni and two other squadrons that rotated in and out uh, that were, so a total of 36 active aircraft at any given time. And our primary goal there while we were there was to act as a deterrent against North Korean aggression. So, you know, that was always on our mind. And obviously, uh, uh, pilots need to be able to talk to each other. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they actually have their own systems. Largely, what I was focusing on was making sure that the headquarters had access to the the wider uh, internal intranet for the Marine Corps, which... Pilots being their unique breed, they also wanted access to the internet at large and have make sure it's fast and efficient. And you know, uh, especially as a young officer in the Marine Corps, I wasn't about to go say no to my my boss. Uh, he's very intimidating, very nice, well, a very strong personality um, and a smart guy. But uh, he, if he wanted something, he wanted it, and there was no question about it. So where did you where did you go after that? I think you uh, uh, came back to D.C., right? Yeah, I, I ended up getting stationed at the Pentagon, more or less in an enterprise IT support role for headquarters Marine Corps. I lived in northern Virginia and Alexandria, which is practically D.C. for, for all intents and purposes. If you, if you could, it used to be part of D.C. back when uh, uh, Virginia had that, their little contribution of it. Anyway, uh, so Alexandria was a beautiful town. And we were talking about this uh, earlier uh, in a different episode about how while I was there, uh, I really loved using the metro. Uh, and I think the thread between all of the places where I chose to live. So in D.C., I could have lived in any number of suburbs. Uh, Heidelberg, I, I ended up living downtown in Annapolis where I, I was first exposed to this down, the walkable downtown area. Uh, was that when I have a choice, I really love to go someplace where I can step out of my door and be someplace I want to be and be able to live as a pedestrian to the extent possible, which is ironic given that I come from a, the center of car, car culture. But frankly, you know, in, in Alexandria, we had, a, we had one car. Uh, I am married. And I, by then I had uh, one daughter. By the time we left, we had two. And... Uh, we were able to get by on one car because the metro took me exactly from where I was to exactly where I wanted to be. Which yeah, in this case, Pentagon was has a metro. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I mean, I, if the, I took it took longer for me to walk from the exit to uh, at the Pentagon's metro to my office in the Warren of the Pentagon than it did to actually stay on the train. So you know, it was convenient. It's only like five stops, I think. Yeah, I was I was going from King Street uh, in in Alexandria, and that, it, as, it, the way I broke it down, ten minutes to King Street, ten minutes from King Street to Pentagon Metro, and then uh, another ten minutes to my office. So that was the total commute. was was uh, really convenient. That's great. Um, so you've been interested in transportation uh, for a long time. Well, you know what? I, I really trace my interest to my interest in the Detroit economy. To the, the so. I really can look back and say the main thread has been my interest in the economic success of my home. And throughout the whole time I was uh, abroad, as 
part of the Marine Corps, I continue to view the Metro Detroit area as the place that I want to go back to. My wife is from West Bloomfield. I'm from the Rochester area. And we were always keeping in touch with family and always intended that we would come back to Detroit at some point. And when I look at the future of the Metro Detroit area, you can't take, take that, you can't separate it from from transportation and the future of transportation. And so uh, I, I feel like I have interest in transportation insofar as I have seen what good tr uh, transportation systems can look like, but I also have an interest in, in making sure that in a future where the, the car, the single occupancy vehicle has less relevance, that Detroit and Southeast Michigan and Michigan more generally remain relevant economically uh, in that future. So. Absolutely. I think that's a, a central theme of this, this podcast. Well, in, in effect, I think that's why we started the podcast is because I, I wanted to have a podcast where I have people who have insight into this future of Detroit, how we can get there and what we're already doing to get there. Uh, and, I just want to listen to that podcast. So I, there wasn't quite anything quite like it out there yet. Yeah. So so this is a this is a podcast we're we're creating in real time now. Absolutely. Um, it's so, very meta. <laughs> um, so so after DC, uh, after the Pentagon, I think you you did have the opportunity to come back to Detroit. Yeah. I uh, it, it was I was at the break in in where my contract was, and I had to just decision to make. I could have stayed in D.C., probably gotten a civilian job there. And part of me really wanted to because I, I loved where we were living in, in Alexandria, a very walkable downtown. But on the other hand, we had at that point a two-year-old and a newborn. And we wanted to make sure that the girls knew their grandparents and great-grandparents growing up. I, I still, I'm blessed to have three living grandparents and uh, I want my I wanted my girls to, to know them when they they're while they're still around so and they we, were all here in in Michigan yeah exactly so my my two grandparents still live in uh, Oakland Township outside of Rochester and, and my other grandma is living in Warren and so we uh, and, and not to mention my all my in-laws mostly out in West Bloomfield and Farmington but still in the metro area it was it was all here and uh, so and then on top of it, I wanted to be part of the the future Detroit economy that I was envisioning and was hearing was on the up and up. I mean, and and it's it is. It, I think this is this is not a false start. Like we're really here. There's actually good movement, and there's a lot of good drive to entrepreneurship, to kind of new economy, even the and for the big three to try to take this problem by the reins. Uh, we're, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're moving in the right direction. And in that context, I decided we decided as a family that that moving back to Detroit was was the right call. And as part of that, um, uh, you you elected to to leave the Marine Corps. Uh, yeah, active duty. I'm still in the reserves. Yeah. So, right. uh, and a as a reservist, uh, there was a couple of steps along the way. But currently, I'm I'm helping transitioning veterans find jobs as part of the Marine for Life program. So that's uh, another hat that I wear, trying to make sure that veterans have opportunities as they get off active duty, something that I would have appreciated back in 2015 when I was actually making the move, because uh, I, I end up coming back home in July. Technically, I didn't leave the Marine Corps until September because uh, 
you have this thing where you could save up all your vacation time and just take it at the end. And so uh, it's called terminal leave. And so that gave, gives you a little bit more time to, to find a job and get settled. But it wasn't until November. So that's a number of months be- uh, when I finally accepted a position at FCA as uh, a manager in their IT section. So which, which translated really well from me being a communications officer, being in charge of Marines who are setting up networks and making sure that all the, uh, the things can talk to each other to being in charge of something very similar for one of the large automakers, except in a plant and, and manufacturing context. Yeah, I, I think that um, uh, I, I always see you on LinkedIn um, posting a lot of the Marine for Life. Uh, events. Um, it's it's great work that you do. Absolutely. And I, I feel pretty blessed to be able to do it. Uh, it's one of those things that I would be happy to volunteer to do, but they still, as a reservist, I still get paid for the work that I'm doing. And I love to, to meet Marines. I, I love to be able to re, uh, remain involved in the Marine Corps community and even build it because I feel like I've done a lot to try to uh, create this community from scratch in a lot of ways. There's a lot of people out there, but trying to bring them together is sometimes uh, when everybody has their own individual interest and in, in, uh, their own individual lives uh, to, to continue to have that sense of community to help people out. Especially as, you know, as people get married, as people have kids, there are a lot of other demands in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, so I was at FCA for, for about two years, just over two years. And during that time, I, I was kind of trying to pivot within the context of the FCA IT section to be more focused on connected vehicles, autonomous vehicles, any kind of mobility space. But it was kind of it was fairly difficult within the context of a large bureaucracy to make that pivot. You need experience to be able to do the thing, and then in order, to, you know, it, how do you make that transition without doing it first when you already have something the company wants you to do. <laughs> so that, that, that I found a little bit difficult. So. Sure. No, that's good, good, um, good perspective, I think, for a, I think, for a lot of professionals in Metro Detroit who want to be um, you know, part of this new mobility economy, how do you make that pivot? Absolutely. And I, that's a whole other discussion that we, we can and should have. I, I, when I first was thinking about building this podcast, I was considering having an entire season discussing that very, very subject about how someone who wants to be part of the new mobility economy can, can get there and going beyond simply saying, hey, take a coding class, which is great, but it's uh, a little bit reductive. I have found in, in the past uh, year or so, a little bit less, where, when I've been actively looking for a job in the area, a lot of the jobs are in software development and software engineering <laughs> and getting that experience is a little bit tough uh, if you want to do that. But there, that's where the talent there's shortage is. So I know we have to crack that nut somehow. Yeah, but I, I think that um, I would think your, your background in communications uh, equipment and uh, you know, providing, obviously, robust mission-critical infrastructure would be valued by the, by the companies. I mean... And, um, uh, at FCA, did you do you think that that translation really happened? It was there was a one project that I was involved in that was tangentially involved uh, related to autonomous and connected vehicles. Uh, 
it's public now, so I don't feel too bad talking about it. Um, but they were upgrading the Chelsea Proving Ground to be able to do some testing in, in autonomous connected vehicles. And, and uh, so I, I was involved in that. Uh, but it was... It was not the set focus of what I was doing, and so it was hard to try to uh, continue to emphasize this. And on top of that, I ended up getting a little bit uh, not, sidetracked is the wrong word. I, I changed my focus to run for, for office at the beginning of, uh, of 2018. So well, that could was, you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, because I think uh, I think this the the future economy was was really your focus. Absolutely, and I, I really. All the themes that I've kind of been bringing up so far, uh, they drove me to want to affect government in the way that I wanted private business to act as well. We need to have a forward-looking government that enables autonomous connected vehicles to, to work better. And to me, that means building up the infrastructure in a smart way. Uh, looking forward and not just talking about roads, but talking about the infrastructure that needs to be there in order for connected vehicles to work most effectively, whether that's 5G, whether it's uh, DSRC kind of uh, smart transportation, uh, smart infrastructure like lights or that sort of thing. We need to be looking forward and be the leader in that area. And I felt that government definitely had a role to play to setting the uh, the environment for, for private businesses to succeed in, in the area. But uh, so that was really my focus in, in running and uh, part of my impetus to do that, other than the fact that I just appreciate good governance and sometimes I don't always see that from our elected officials. So, Yeah, I think we, we can agree there. Um, but uh, and, and actually, Michigan has been one of the leaders in, in connected freeway technology. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole uh, a test bed um, of uh, roadside units, DSRC uh, enabled, I believe, um, on 696, on 94. Um, what do you think about um, those initiatives thus far? And uh... Well, I think it's great. You just need to do more. I think there's always more to be done. Uh, having a consistency and coherency across, uh, across municipal boundaries, I think, is important. Oakland County's done a really interesting thing in, in putting out a bid for uh, intelligent traffic systems, and they're working with that. But it's almost like the, the real barrier to success is, is not necessarily in government guidance, but in business model. So the question always comes back to how are we going to make money doing this? Because in order for it to be sustainable, we, th there should be some way to, to make it uh, so that it, it doesn't need to be supported by government intervention or taxes or, or uh, anything. And, and I, I believe that there's the capability there, just kind of putting the right, you know, finding that right uh, peg to fit in the, the hole. The right framework. Exactly. And uh, there are some interesting discussions going on in Oakland County uh, regarding this that I had the uh, privilege of listening into a little bit. But I, I think that we are, uh, we're, we're in the right mindset, right? We are. We know that it's a problem. We know that it's something we have to do, but it's not over yet. And that's what I guess my point is. You need people in the legislature and the legislative bodies at every level who are aware of this and are pushing forward to make things more effective and uh, forward-looking in terms of uh, whether it's intelligent tra uh, 
transportation systems or you know, regional transit, which we talked about in a different segment. Um, so I know we're doing a lot, and but I don't think we're doing enough quite yet. I don't, I'm not sure that we could ever be doing enough. Well, I think that's the that's what we need to talk about. Right. What what else can we be doing? Well, I I actually wrote uh, from from a government perspective, I I think that the framework of funding for roads is is an important way to look at what technology can offer. So I penned an op-ed for the uh, for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy that talked about road usage charges. And I think that in a fully realized version of the road usage charges, you could start to charge people for actual usage and feed it back into actual repairs for the roads being used. Uh, there are definitely issues that need to be worked out in terms of privacy, uh, in terms of uh, making sure that it's effective and that the dollars are being used in, in a responsible way and not being directed toward other things other than roads, right? But I think that if you start to look at the framework now, then you, you're, you're better off going forward as the technology becomes more sophisticated to deal with those, some, some of those issues. I don't really buy the idea that um, privacy is a non-starter so, because I look at and see everybody with their phones out and constantly being tracked without even really thinking about it that much. And yeah, I get it. Transportation is its own thing. But if we could figure out a way to make our phones work, then I think we could f find a way to make connected vehicles work so that we have uh, more efficient and effective ways of uh, getting where we need to go and and funding it in a way that, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, got, um, I think your op-ed was, was really... Um, a good eye-opener to, uh, to just look at a different way of funding the system. Um, it's a good way to start this conversation because I think, uh, you know, uh, depending on when you listen to this, um, uh, when we are recording this, uh, Governor Whitmer just announced a, a proposal to increase our, our gas tax to fund the repairs we, we desperately need mm -hmm. in our road system. But but I think you're, you're proposing that, you know, we need... A much broader range of, of uh, revenue uh, options that are more tailored to actual use. And, and it's not just, uh, I think in an ideal future, road usage charges would completely supplant the gas tax and the gas tax would go away. I, I mean, I, when you have something that's a, a tax, which is you're taking money from a purchase of a something, it's a lot more temptation to use it for something else. And I I mean, I'm not an expert about where all the gas tax money go to, but I, I don't think all of it goes to roads, right? So with that in mind, uh, where you, uh, once you have a road usage charge that's, and you put the framework in place where you're able to put it back into the roads that are actually being used, there's a lot less wiggle room there. At least that's my ideal. And on top of that, I, I think the bigger point is that as gas becomes less the, the mode of, of moving the cars, we just need to have something better in place. And we need to be looking at that already. Uh, an electric Tesla tr semi-truck that's hauling the max amount of stuff on the road is not paying a cent into the maintenance of roads, but they Still are- Still very heavy. But they're, it's using it just as much. So we have to figure out a way to deal with that. Well, we were talking about um, the, the use 
know, especially as electric vehicles become more prevalent, um, the gas tax fundamentally just won't work as well mm -hmm. um, because there'll be a lot of cars on the road not paying it. So yeah. how do you replicate that revenue? Is it, is it in vehicle registration? That's partially what people are doing, but um, other states, uh, Oregon is, mm -hmm. is looking at, uh, you know, a, a VMT well, and, the, and they are actually, yeah, they have the original uh, road usage charge pilot in the U.S. And there's a lot to be said for that. I, I really, what I would say is that Michigan, if we want to be leaders in the space, we need to be leaders in the policy as well. And uh, that, uh, you can see this being effectively applied at, in Oregon. Those that are participating in the pilot I believe they actually get a discount from the gas tax at the pump. Like they have a way for them to be reimbursed for the taxes that they're paying. Uh, ultimately, like I said, I would like for the road usage charge to supplant the gas tax. And I would add that there, there is opportunity once you introduce the road usage charge for a lot more subtlety in policy. So um, I on the campaign trail, one of the things that was brought up was the idea that we have such high weight limits and that we should restrict the weight limits of trucks on Michigan roads to reduce the wear and tear. I think a better idea would be to just charge them more, right? So if you have a truck that weighs a, that's a, you know, pushing what would be a, over the limit in any other state, then rather than say they can't go on the roads, just charge them the commiserate amount that they have wear and tear. And then yeah, all the tiered system. Kind exactly. Of. And like you could do it so that you have, uh, you could also pay less for having lighter loads, which makes sense, right? Uh, you could pay less for lighter cars. And, and uh, it kind of depends on how you want to implement that. But the, there are ways that you could be uh, doing that subtly to, to be able to, uh, really pay for usage almost in the same way like the, the metaphor that I have in my mind is of a ele electricity meter right you can you're not paying for you're paying for the stuff you actually use and in smart meter technology which other places are, are way ahead uh, of us on and there's some controversy real or imagined out there uh, I uh, th there's even more sophistication where you can start to charge more for uh, usage in peak hours, less on off-peak hours, which builds incentives into doing the right kind of behavior that we would like for a well-balanced electricity grid. Well, you could have the same analog in uh, in terms of transportation charges, road usage charges, because if you have a downtown area that's highly congested, you should have to pay more for the usage, right? I mean... And that starts to incentivize the behavior that we're hoping to see ultimately, but through other policy means. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, just to your point about Michigan, if, if we want to be competitive in this new mobility economy, uh, we absolutely have, have to innovate on policy. And uh, I don't think anyone would argue that Michigan is uh, a nation leading transportation policy. No, I I think that we're we might we're in the head of the pack in terms of autonomous vehicle policy and support. That's so, right. That's right. Uh, with regard to you look at 
the American Center for Mobility is, you know, there's there's a lot of things that the government is doing to help support uh, the autonomous vehicle industry in the region. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about it as well. I And I hope that that continues. But again, uh, I really, yeah, there, there could always be more. And in terms of the policy, in terms uh, like road usage charges, regional transportation or, or yes. other things there, there are things that we could look at to uh, come up with a, a better model yeah and just fundamentally um well i totally agree i think michigan is uh really investing in the future in autonomy and everything that supports it um it is a weird uh counterbalance to a road system that is quite literally disintegrating uh so we need to be we need to figure out um, that balance. I always joked when I lived out of state, I always knew I was home. When I crossed the county line and, man, the roads were suddenly terrible. There's nothing quite as warm and, and <laughs> embracing as <laughs> yeah. terrible potholes on yeah, the, the Ohio, interstate. And Ohio always seems to have pretty good roads, actually. Yeah. I, I don't know. That, that makes the, the frost cycle arguments a little bit lame. Uh, I know. They have... Pretty similar weather. Um, yeah, I, we, we definitely can, not at the county line level. Suddenly, you know, suddenly something transforms and it doesn't rain and frost and, and melt. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we can have a whole conversation um, about about transportation funding and and just how we how we rebuild our road system. Absolutely, and you know, going back, I guess this this uh, conversation diverged from talking about my campaign, and I think this is one aspect of. The many things that government could be doing to help uh, the economy in, in Southeast Michigan become more competitive in, in the near future. And of course, this podcast is part of the conversation to really get at what else there is. But one of the other things I think is, is really important is uh, trying to build a better entrepreneurial culture. I mean, that is something that is happening at a personal level, but you think the Educational curriculum could have some part to play in that. Uh, the discussion of, of how we work with small businesses and the encouragement of small businesses through tax incentives and the like, as opposed to giving, and I don't want to try to get into a conversation about you know, whether we should have offered so much money to Amazon when the time came around or, or anything like that. But um, I think that we need to be encouraging small businesses and entrepreneurial ventures uh, just as much as we need to help support our existing large corporate clients and, and that are in the state. So I think that's another important piece that I, I talked about a lot during my campaign. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, the thing is, that I, th I really think since I started running, which I officially declared my candidacy in like August-ish of 2017, uh, I left Chrysler in, in January of 2018, uh, there's been a lot of really interesting developments in Metro Detroit from a private sector perspective. So I, I look back in that year and a half or so and like stuff that maybe was there, uh, but I hadn't been aware of it. But I think in that time, Ford broke out their smart mobility LLC as a separate corporate entity. What, what that means in, in practice is, is one thing. Uh, but there is that. Then there is... Uh, I think GM's acquisition of Cruise happened during that time. If not, it was, it was soon, or just before that. It was relatively recently. 
And then I, I know it was in early 2017. Yeah. Um, then Autonomic, I think, was uh, acquired by Ford in, in that period. Anyway, there's, there's a lot been of a lot, a lot of stuff going on. Um, we were talking at a, at a different uh, point about. Newtonomy being acquired by Aptive, and I mean Aptive sp spinning off as its own division, and I think that probably happened after I started running for office. And yes, I think so. So like, and and of course Ford's announcement in in Corktown. I mean, oh yeah, Central. absolutely huge. Yeah, so they, you know, all of the the companies are investing um, in, in this future. Yeah, and I guess uh, so. Like the prospect of, of working in, in private industry in this area has is, is been a really interesting one to me. Uh, it's always, I think, going back to how do you break into this area without having the background short of um, getting lucky or <laughs> you, it, it, to a large extent you have to have uh, or starting your own business, which is its own um, certain amount of risk that you have to take on. That's right. Um, and, and what kind of skill sets? I mean, I think... Uh, you know, just driving down 94 the other day, I saw a billboard for, I think it was like Henry Ford Community College or, you know, Wayne County, uh, Wayne County Community College um, about, you know, interested in self-driving cars, take these courses. Um, so, so even from a very early age, people are getting these messages, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is really beneficial. Absolutely. To start and considering. I, I think that we, the, the difficulty in plugging the talent gap is a lot of mid-career professionals who have been very successful as engineers or whatever else, but we have a strong engineering talent. Uh, and uh, we, if, the, if someone with that kind of background wants to break into the self-driving car mobility field, it's really hard to take a step back and say, I'm going to take a semester off to take classes, or I am going to, you know, take a coding boot camp and start from the baseline to, you know, start building my coding chops so that now I can bring these two things together and maybe be an even more effective member of the, the workforce. I uh, try to break, crack that code and figure out how to help people on that transition, I think would be an important part of any overall t uh, talent development effort. So, yeah, I mean, just if you look at where we are, so we're, we're in downtown Detroit right now recording this, just up the street is a Grand Circus, uh, which does coding boot camps and other uh, longer form classes, um, and, and also just short workshops for people. Um, yeah, it seems like, you know, maybe that has a role to play, mm -hmm. um, but, but longer courses, Personally, I think Kettering has, uh, given its history, has a role to play. Uh, Lawrence Tech, absolutely. Um, CCS as well, uh, the Center for Creative Studies. Well, and, and with uh, the work of of Chris Thomas and uh, Jessica Robinson at, at uh, Detroit Mobility Labs is really important. I believe there's going to be coming out with a master's in mobility studies. Is That's that right. What yeah. No. I. I'm. Thanks for mentioning that. I was just talk, talking with Jessica the other week um, about this new program. Um, so Detroit. Mobility Lab is creating MMI, which is the Michigan Mobility Institute. And I think, yeah, a master's degree is the first thing that they're looking at. Which would be really cool, especially if they are flexible for working professionals, which I think will be an important aspect of that. So I think they will be. I'd imagine so. Uh, yeah, so, I, I mean, there's 
really we're we're in a period in Southeast Michigan's history where there's a lot going on, and I'm really excited about to be a part of it. Me too. Me yeah. too. Um, so I guess looking back on on your career in the Marines um, at FCA as a uh, you know kind of budding politician and and public policy uh, uh, strategist, um, how do you see? Uh, yourself, where do you want to be in this industry? Ideally, you know, I, it's it's. Uh, I would love to be looking at the overall regional strategy for Southeast Michigan. Part of me wanted to start a business, and because in a lot of ways, it's the modern modern economy modern society is driven by private businesses and their ability to come up with innovative ideas that kind of uh, are useful right <laughs> when it comes down to it it's a matter mm -hmm. of being useful um, it's hard to say where I'll end up I, I would like I said I'd love to look at the overall strategy of a large company that would be able to uh, move things forward um, I'd love to, I still am interested in government, but it's just going to probably take a while for me to get back to that uh, because it is a, a very time-consuming endeavor. I would, uh, to me, w w you look at this mobility environment and the, the acronym that people put out there, it's Connected, Autonomous, Shared, and Electric. Uh, I... I think all four of those are very important. I'm personally most interested in the connected one. I almost feel it's one of the more neglected, lesser discussed aspects of it. Everybody loves talking about Uber and Lyft. There's the autonomous aspect, which I've, it's the future to most people and it's the most eye-catching, the idea of getting in a taxi or other shared transportation service and not having a driver it's like science fiction so it really grasps the uh, it gathers the imagination but to me the connectedness of the the transportation system is is all is really what what holds it together by definition right when i look at i, I kind of look at the analog of the modern internet and you have people creating content but you have the network and the network has always fascinated me. I look at uh, something like the undersea cable system and the amount, the Herculean effort that it took to build this thing and the amount of money and human effort and the kind of the confluence of forces that came together to make that happen in the late 90s where there was tons of money in the industry and then the end of the dot-com boom which allowed it to be available for cheap in a way enables the modern outsourced economy. That's a, that's a very good point. I mean, you had companies like Nortel, uh, Nortel networks out of uh, Canada. You mm -hmm. had, um, you know, global crossing, you had level three, level three still around, but a lot of those companies, yeah, we're spending billions to run fiber. Absolutely. Um, and we absolutely, we benefit uh, hugely from a great, uh, internet backbone, a uh, fiber internet backbone. What we don't have um, uh, is is that kind of last mile connection, which also has a transportation um, analog as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, this is taking me a little bit of time to to bring full circle. But 
which if anyone's interested in physical infrastructure behind the modern internet, there's a great book called Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet. I don't remember who wrote it, but yeah, I, I, I think it came out in 2012. I remember reading it around that time. But they talk a lot about the, uh, the, the title is a reference to an offhanded comment by a congressman. It, it was a the senator. Senator from Georgia, right? Okay, anyway, but but getting back to connected but, but, yeah, vehicles. Po point is, um, so you have this infrastructure that people don't even notice, and to me that's fascinating. You have the content that comes through that everybody notices in everybody's face, but the Herculean effort that it takes to get your Wi-Fi to work, I know that effort because I've dealt with it when I was working at FCA, when I was working in the Marine Corps, when you had to put a satellite dish to this is miracle of modern science and the question is why is my internet going so slow when the real question is how amazing is it that this works at all <laughs> anyway i digress so but, back to what, but yeah back yeah. to transportation so what uh and, and specifically the connected aspect of that we have uh i envision a world where it doesn't matter whether you're calling an Uber or you're using the public transportation or you're flying on an airplane, you should be able, all of these things should be connected. They should be so connected that we have a good sense of how long it's going to take for the, uh, the, the cab or whatever it is to get from point A to point B in order to make it in time for the plane that goes from point B to point C and then gets you from point C to point D instantaneously because not instantaneously sorry uh if without having to wait at every one of the inflection points because it's so connected i think this is an engineering problem away not like a quantum leap it's a matter of making sure that there's similar connected standards that the routing protocols make sense and that there's enough input for uh of data and a powerful enough co computer to be able to really analyze traffic flow and redirect it as needed. Um, so my point is, the part that stands out in that future, there's going to be the autonomous side. There's definitely going to be the shared side. And I think all of those pieces, uh, to a certain extent, will be electric. But I think about how are there go these pieces going to be connected? How are th is the road going to be connected to be able to analyze the traffic flow patterns? How are the cars going to be able to talk to each other so that they don't have collisions? And if you know anything about uh, IP networking, there's a very strong analog to how our information travels through wires. A lot of times when things happen slow, it's because there are literal Maybe packet, there are packets, collisions. Yeah, lost. packets. There uh, packets, packet loss, collisions because of the protocols not lining up. Um, anyway, I, I, without getting too technical, and there are routers that pick the most effective routes to get from point A to point B, and if they're programmed incorrectly, it'll often take a long time. And I feel like the transportation system as it exists has uh, a lot of relationship to that idea. Now, historically, of course, um, and I, this is fascinating, I, I, I really, we should probably have a whole episode about this vision, right? Mm -hmm. um, but do you think this is government's role to, to run that network? Or do you think the private, like the internet, of course, most of the infrastructure was built by the private sector. Mm -hmm. do you, how do you see that playing out? So I think that in general, the private sector is going to be the driver of innovation. 
government has a role as a referee. So you need to make sure that if the private sector can't come up with consistent, coherent standards for vehicles to be able to talk to each other, then government will need to step in. Uh, I think that government can do some stuff to, especially around the edges in terms of pilots, around coordination. You, you look at what needs to happen for this to happen on a on even a small scale. Uh, you need buy-in from municipal governments. You need buy-in from state and local governments. That's you know county, uh, cities, and and the state, and whatever you know cities, but townships or whatever else. If, is, is playing a part in this. So uh, I would say primarily I'd look for look to the private sector for the innovation piece, but uh, maybe for government to help with the cooperation between the two. It's almost like you're you're um, you're like mediating between the, the different uh, interests and in, in advocating for the public good, right? Well I think I think that's a that's a key point because um, I, I absolutely think the private sector has a huge role to play. And innovation and pushing this forward, but to be able to route vehicles intelligently on a kind of connected freeway, you know, probably by many different providers who also like how how do you balance competing needs on a shared infrastructure? That's you know, right? That that's um, you know, I mean, that's where I hate to to out myself as as a free market capitalist, but that's where the beauty of the market really has the potential to do a lot. When you are trying to allocate limited goods without the people who are using them have any kind of buy-in to the wear and tear they're putting on those goods, then people are going to use it to the max and just complain when it falls apart. A tragedy of the commons. Exactly. And I, I feel like, to a large extent, modern transportation in America, uh, road transportation in particular, is representing a lot of the failures are a tragedy of the commons. And uh, that's why I think road usage charges have a big part to play, because if you're actually being charged for the uh, economic costs that you're you're causing on the system, the, the strain you're putting on the system, then people will adjust their behavior. And I think this will be even more true in a more fully realized version of this, where it's not the humans that are deciding which path to take, but there's some sort of algorithmic algorithmic path. The humans are deciding where they're going, just not how to get there. Well, you know, an algorithm can factor in cost of road usage a lot pretty quick. And you could even have uh, competing so I haven't I didn't get into this here, sure. but I think a fully re realized road usage charge uh, scheme would involve potentially potentially involve at least some private owners of the roads who would then charge an appropriate amount based on usage and other factors and they would be compelled to keep the road up in, in good order because they're competing on quality and price right and in that world if they charge too much people route around the route but if they charge the appropriate amount it will be used in an efficient and effective manner right yeah, yeah i think um I, I'm not uh, not entirely sold on on privatization of, of key urban routes, um, but I think expressways uh, private um, operation you see 
very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, Indiana leased the Indiana Toll Road, um, you know, and, and the lease stipulated that they needed to keep it in good working order. Um, most European uh, expressways are privately run uh, for tolls. Um, but, but I think the kind of who operates the road, um, especially when people have no alternative, I think that gets very tricky and it becomes a natural monopoly. Um, and, and, and government has a, has a higher role to play to just ensure the public good is, is protected. And in my conception, it would be up to the municipality or organization, whether it's the state or, or even the federal government in the case of the, uh, to a certain extent, in the case of the interstate system, um, to make a choice on how to approach that, whether they want to contain, continue to own and operate that road and take the revenue from that to feed back into the maintenance of that road, uh, or they want to outsource it could be up to the individual city. And different cities have the different capacity to have like a municipal road commission that actually does the work that a private company can do, but uh, choose not to do it because they want to regulate in such a way to make it uh, accessible to everybody. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, and we're, when you're talking about cities, I mean, this is somewhat philosophical. You do have a, a trade-off between public and private goods um, and, and guaranteeing equal access um, is is important, although um, some some pricing I think congestion charges um, where you price externalities um, on the network are really important. And with a connected network, you can do more slot based kind of you know in this lane on this road at this time costs X, and your intelligent routing algorithm can incorporate that based on you know your preferences on you know cost versus time. Mm-hmm. And I think. Um, there is a lot of innovation there. Well, and, and if you, again, in a, a fully realized version, this is all incorporated into the public transportation system, and maybe the cost to get to a park and ride is way cheaper, and then you take a LSAV to where you actually want to go, and it becomes uh, a more efficient system that encourages pedestrians where, where it's appropriate, but maintains the key arteri- arterial roads uh, and, and just charges appropriately. Yeah, I think I think any system that would work would have to prioritize, incentivize uh, sharing of vehicles. Yeah. Um, so a bus, you know, on a per passenger basis, which would be much cheaper to travel on on a given corridor because it's a more efficient way just to get people through that road. Um, so So therefore... Um, it would be cheaper, um, and and the financial incentives and disincentives should should uh, reflect that. And I think with uh, I want to go back to this discussion. Um, so, like I was saying, I would love to be involved in this idea of a connected infrastructure. I think that is, in a nutshell, where I'm, I'm looking to be. Uh, but I did also want to talk about uh, this idea of shared. It's come out a couple of times, and I think that there are two level levels of being shared, right? On the one hand, shared means you're physically going in a car with somebody else. I think on the other hand, simply the idea that you're lending out your car to somebody else while you're not using it is also a key part of that. So when you look at the autonomous vehicle future, uh, which is probably still a few years away, and you look at something like Maven, and we may have had this conversation at a different time, but um, they're doing great work in terms of setting up the framework 
for a future where people own autonomous vehicles but don't need to use them all the time. If people are willing to lend out their personal car to somebody who just walks up and gets access via the app, then they'll likely start to socialize the idea of lending out their autonomous vehicle, which wouldn't have to park, wouldn't have to do anything, and then suddenly Maven is a big player in the area where they have a whole fleet of cars that they don't own but are on demand where they need to be without having to pay a driver not a bad model, even if they're just taking a cut of a percentage off the top. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really promising business model, um, especially because people probably for many reasons will still opt to own a personal car. But, you know, if they can make money off of that asset and they're not using it, that's great. It's something similar. Uh, Tesla's actually uh, t- thought about something similar. Um, but it, I guess in closing, Joe, um, because we've talked a lot about a lot of different uh, things. Is there something that you want to leave listeners with? Well, I'm really excited about getting the conversation started on this podcast. I mean, the conversation is already ongoing in a whole number of media, but I like the idea of, of trying to really understand uh, what Michigan needs to do to to be competitive what we're going to be uh, what we're already up to and where the gaps might be and what are our things what are the things that we bring to the table Uh, so i look forward to continuing this podcast i look forward to continuing this conversation in a number of different forums and whether it's just me and john or we're hoping to get people on the, the uh, as in interviewees uh, to talk about their subject matter expertise and uh, I'm, I'm excited. Yes, I think uh, yeah we are planning a a few interviewees uh, coming up next, so um, we look we look forward to sharing those with you. Um, but uh, Joe, it's been a pleasure to to talk today about about your background, and uh, I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to interview me. I think it's a good way to both introduce ourselves to the audience and to each other. And I um, uh, I think it came came together well. So thanks a lot for for having me. Well, thanks everyone for listen, listening to Michigan Mobility Scene, and uh, talk to you next time.